Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, thank you for being here. Today on the show, we have Rucker Bregman. He's a Dutch philosopher, historian, and author, but you likely first heard of him from two different viral videos. The first was a monologue he delivered at Davos, railing against the hypocrisy of an event that warns of our climate crisis and yet has participants from around the world flying in on their private jets. The second video was his spat with Tucker Carlson. It was an unaired interview that showed the Fox host getting increasingly irate over Bregman's criticism. We walked through both of these events in our talk. But most recently, he has a new book out titled Humankind. It makes an argument that we don't hear presented very often, that most people, in their nature, are actually pretty decent. He makes the case for human decency, backed by science and history. This may sound terribly simplistic or obvious, but that's why I wanted to have him on. Especially this week, as we enter the home stretch of this election cycle here in America. I have a feeling you may be as worn down as I am. The pandemic has exacerbated what would have already been a draining election. And so, in contemplating what our collective future could look like, I thought Rucker's positive philosophies may be of value to you and I right now. I'm still not entirely convinced by everything Rucker says and writes, but I do think he has something here. 
a fundamental belief that most people, despite what we see on the news, on social media, most people are mostly all right. Is that hopelessly naive? Maybe, but I'll take that description over the alternative, at least today. Rucker Bregman, how are you doing right now? I'm good. It's good to see you. And thanks for having me. This book of yours, Humankind, I just finished reading it at five in the morning today. I want to know not only how you describe the sort of ethos of the book, but where the guiding principles and philosophies sit in this moment inside the pandemic. Well, it's a book about a very simple idea idea that I can describe in just a couple of words, you know, in a short sentence, which would be deep down, most people are pretty decent. Now, that may sound like I've written this nice and warm book about who the power of kindness or something like that. But what I try to argue in the book is that it's a really subversive idea, that it has quite radical implications for how we structure and govern our society. And that if you really believe this, then we can totally reorganize our schools and our democracies and our prisons and you name it. Especially those at the top, those in power often become quite nervous when you start to argue that most people are, well, not angels, but pretty decent because it means that maybe we don't need them. If people can't trust each other, then they need hierarchy, then they need other people to be in control, right? They need monarchs and kings and presidents and CEOs and managers. If we can actually trust each other, then maybe we can govern ourselves and move to a much more democratic and egalitarian society. So that's what the book is basically about. And then the question for the past couple of months has obviously been, and many of my friends have said this to me, is, well, now uh, this is the real test of your theory, right? especially when there was a lot in the news about people hoarding toilet paper. Many of my friends couldn't resist sort of pointing out, hey, Rutger, <laughs> what happened to your theory there? <laughs> in chapter one of the book, you write, it's when crisis hits that we humans become our best selves. We are in a crisis. Do you think we are becoming our best selves? Well, in that part of the book, I focus on natural disasters. And if we see a Hollywood movie about a tsunami or an earthquake or something like that, then it's easy to get the impression that when there's a natural disaster, when crisis hits, that we start behaving like beasts, like monsters. You also see this in the news a lot. So we all remember Katrina and we all remember what the press did after that. The news is full of stories of looting and plundering and violence. And then it's interesting to know that actually science tells us something very different. Now we have more than 700 case studies done by anthropologists and sociologists who've done really thorough research into what happens after a natural disaster. And every single time they find the same phenomenon, an explosion of altruism. People from the left to the right, rich, poor, young, old, all start collaborating and working together. This is also actually what happened after Katrina, but that we only found out weeks or months later. Now, the question is, what is a pandemic? What kind of thing is that? It's not really like a sudden crisis, right? It's not like a sudden war or a sudden natural disaster. It's more like we're being occupied by the virus. So it's a real test of our endurance. I think that for the first couple of months, what really was the most important thing to note was that basically billions of people quite radically adjusted their lifestyles to stop the virus from spreading further, which is a pretty extraordinary thing that we can do that. We can't really see it. We have to trust the experts. Still, people were willing to make pretty big sacrifices. 
But now it goes on and on and on and it becomes something different, a test of our endurance. So far, I'm still pretty impressed, to be honest, by the global cooperation that we see and so many experts and, and scientists trying to work on a solution. I think that the headline for me is still this massive cooperation that we see in so many places in the world. But it's not this sudden crisis anymore. I don't think we can compare it to a natural disaster anymore. Speaking of natural disasters, you mentioned Katrina. The discussion around what happened in New Orleans is often focused on the looting, the rampant poverty, the violence. How did you go about upending that dialogue in your new book? Since then, there have been a lot of books that really try to look into this. One of my favorite books on the subject it was written by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell. And what she and many others have shown is that it didn't happen that way. Sure, there was looting, but most of the looting was pro-social in nature. People trying to collect goods and food to share it equally, to help people survive. You remember, you know, all the horrific stories coming out of the Superdome, you know, where I think more than 20,000 people were trapped. And then there were stories of people being killed there. None of that turned out to be true when they later really looked at the evidence. It was all rumors being spread around. And that is what you see every single time, is that our imagination tends to be really dark at those moments, and especially the imagination of those at the top. This is a phenomenon that, I, that I've encountered a lot during my research, is that it's especially those at the top who are very cynical. Because when they think about human nature, they look in the mirror and they assume that most people are like themselves, which is often quite corrupt because power corrupts. Power is this incredibly dangerous drug. And one of the explanations, one of the main explanations for basically evil in the world is that we have to be very wary of power. Uh, and then what happens at moments like this is that those at the top in charge have this very cynical worldview and view of human nature, and they base their policy response on that. And instead of sending in the emergency services, what they did after Katrina, they sent in the military. What did they start doing? Well, started shooting innocent people. So that is the tragedy that you often see. First, the natural disaster, and then the second disaster, which often comes from the top. In Rebecca Solnit's book, A Paradise Built in Hell, she wrote, My own impression is that the elite panic comes from powerful people who see all humanity in their own image. There's a, a Dutch primatologist. His name is Frans de Waal. He's uh, written wonderful books about bonobos and chimpanzees. And he has a wonderful term for this. He talks about veneer theory. And veneer theory is the notion that our civilization is only a thin veneer, only a thin layer. And when we apply a little bit of pressure, when something happens, that this veneer breaks and that people reveal who they really are, which is selfish, which is nasty, you know, that we basically are these beasts or even monsters. Now, veneer theory is very deeply embedded in Western culture. It goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks. The Greek historian Thucydides already was an advocate of veneer theory when he wrote about the plague in Athens or when he wrote about the wars between um, Athens and Sparta. It was also uh, Orthodox Christianity. You read the, the writings of St. Augustine, who talked about original sin, the idea that we're all just sinners, and even a small little baby is already very sinful. Then you would expect some kind of break between Orthodox Christianity and the Enlightenment. But actually, if you read the Enlightenment philosophers, they have the same view of human nature. Again, veneer theory comes back. So you can read Thomas Hobbes, the famous British philosopher, who argued that back in the state of nature, 
We lived lives that were nasty, brutish and short, and we were engaging in a war of all against all. Uh, you also had people like David Hume and Adam Smith, who had a more mixed view of human nature, but thought that on a political level, we should believe that most people are just selfish and design our systems around that. Now, then we have the founding fathers of the United States, people like John Adams, who wrote an essay, all men would be tyrants if they could. Then we have the social Darwinists from the 19th century. Then we have modern capitalism. And I think the central idea of modern neoliberal capitalism, as many people call it, is basically that people are fundamentally selfish. Many economists have bought into that theory and built a cathedral of models <laughs> around it. And I mean, for decades, if you studied economics, this is what you were taught, you know, in Economics 101, that people are just these rational, self-serving agents. So this notion of veneer theory, it comes back again and again and again in Western culture. Yeah, I think the reason it comes back again and again, or one of the main reasons, is that it's in the interest of those in power. It really helps them to justify inequality and hierarchy. History is written by the victors. Exactly. And th this is also what you see in this really famous and important debate between those two philosophers from the 17th and the 18th century, Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So Thomas Hobbes, as I mentioned, believed that in the state of nature, when we were hunter-gatherers, we lived these terrible lives. Nasty, brutish and short was his famous phrase. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French guy, and it was often seen as the romantic, you know, idealist, revolutionary, bit naive thinker. He said that actually, in the state of nature, life was pretty good, that life as a nomadic and together was pretty good, and that civilization was the big disaster. Now, it's interesting that usually Rousseau has been described as the naive guy and Hobbes as the realist, and that has really been shifting and turning in the past 20 to 30 years. More and more experts, anthropologists and archaeologists, are now starting to believe that actually, all this time, it was Rousseau who was the real realist. And it was Thomas Hobbes who was wrong. Now, why don't we know that? As you said, history is written by the victors. Nomadic hunter-gatherers don't write a lot of books. They don't do that. They, they travel around. They have these oral cultures. So writing itself is an invention of civilization and often written by people who are writing in service of the state. So the first text that we have, that we base our view of world history on, is often propaganda texts, where those nomadic hunter-gatherers are described as the barbarians and the people in cities are described as these civilized, better, superior beings. So you really have to understand that as a historian, that the sources that we have are not objective or neutral. You know, there's a huge bias in favor of the so-called civilized people. You point to Machiavelli, John Adams, Freud, Darwin as these essential realists. And I understand why these people propagated these ideas of realism as a means of control. What I am curious about is why readers of that material would believe it. What is their incentive to believe their dystopic, heartbreaking view of humanity? So I think there are a couple of things here. Cynicism is attractive because it gives you an excuse to do nothing. I think that often cynicism is another word for laziness, because if things are lost anyway, then who cares? And then you have to understand that those at the top often want you to be cynical because that's how they rule. I mean, if you look at the US election right now, a lot of Republicans, they don't use the strategy of trying to get more voters. No, they want people who are thinking about voting for Joe Biden to be more cynical so that they don't vote at all. So voter suppression is the most cynical strategy that you can imagine in a democracy. They want you 
to be cynical and to believe that nothing's ever going to change. Sometimes that's attractive as well, because then it just means that you don't have to do anything. The other thing that plays an important role here is what psychologists call our negativity bias. So evil is simply more powerful than good. That's just the way it is. The negative is stronger than the positive. Why is that just the way it is? Well, there's probably an evolutionary reason for it. Imagine you're a nomadic hunter-gatherer and you travel around in the savannah or on the tundra or whatever. You know, in a world like that, you don't want to be afraid or not afraid enough of snakes or spiders because one mistake can be fatal. You'd rather be too afraid or once too often because that helps you to survive. So there's probably some evolutionary advantage here that this negativity bias, you know, for thousands of years helped us to survive and have more kids and pass on our genes to the next generation. But nowadays in this modern world where we're being bombarded, it's on the news all the time and social media, there's so much negativity out there and our brains just explode, right? <laughs> it's, it's very hard to handle this negativity. But it is the fact of life that you, you have to deal with. And something that I encountered over and over again in my research in many different settings is that the only way that the good can win is with an overwhelming majority. So if you look at protest movements, for example, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that peaceful protest movements like Black Lives Matter are more effective than violent protest movements. And why are they? Well, sociologist Erica Chenoweth uh, has done a huge amount of research and she built a database of protest movements that goes back to the year 1900. And she's shown that peaceful protest movements just draw in a lot more people, on average 11 times more. So they're just drawing so many people, you know, kids and men and women, and rich and poor and young and old, etc., etc. And that's the only way the good can win. And then luckily we live in a world where there's more good than evil. But it's a bit of a bummer that evil is stronger than good. But that's the way it is. In terms of the negativity bias, you point to news as being one of the culprits in their fascination and focus on the exceptional. You speak in this book and in previous interviews about how when you rise in the morning, try not to watch the news. Try to read a book. Try to go for a long-form periodical. But in this moment, it does feel like some civil duty to watch the news. So I'm interested in sort of your prescription, which is why are we in this toxic relationship with the news and how can we break free from it? Well, look, I think it's your civil duty to vote. And I think that we have more enough information <laughs> that can help us to make up our mind. I think the choice is relatively simple. This is from a Dutch perspective, by the way. Something that I realized last week is, you know, when we have elections in the Netherlands, there is a tool, a website, sort of... Well, it's a tool that helps you to choose what political party you want to vote for. And we have a country of 70 million inhabitants. And I think that around five or six or maybe seven million people use that tool because we have so many political parties and they all have these, you know, there are all these small differences that it's actually, you really need that tool before, before you know who you're going to vote for. A kind of cheat sheet. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's actually what a healthy democracy looks like, where you have actual choice. Now, obviously, the U.S. is very different, where most people base their vote on, you know, that they hate the other side so much, not because they like their own side. Anyway, that, that is as an aside. I think the, the thing with the news is that the news is almost, almost always about what happens today instead of what happens every day. So there are a lot of important things happening right now that happen today, such as climate change. But you never see a headline that says 
today the world was 0.0000001 degrees hotter than yesterday. But that should be on the front page every day because it's one of the most important things in the world. We devote much more attention and way too much attention to things that are incidents, that are sensational, that are only happen today instead of every day. This is why, for example, terrorism gets so much attention, even though you could easily argue that it's not unimportant, but it's a relatively marginal phenomenon compared to some of the other threats that we are facing as humanity. The decline of biodiversity, climate change, uh, artificial intelligence. Well, <laughs> we all have our favorite existential threats. Favorite is the operative word there. <laughs> yeah. One of the really striking things, actually, is this is a really bizarre paradox. What often happens is that when things start to improve, we get the feeling that they actually deteriorate. So let me give you an example. Tax evasion, that's a pet issue of, of mine. 10 years ago, no one was, was interested in tax evasion. There were no, very few reports about it, very few opinion makers and politicians were talking about it. But back then it was actually the worst. It was absolutely the worst. You had all these unregulated tax paradises. Since then we've made a lot of progress, but now there's much more in the news about it because we actually have a discussion about it. And there's much more discussion around increasing inequality and the role of these awful tax paradises, such as the Netherlands, by the way. But we've actually made quite a bit of progress. So, for example, Switzerland used to have this bank secrecy law. Well, it was demolished by the United States under President Obama. So that is great. But the feeling is that it actually has become worse. This is a very paradoxical thing. One study that I talk about in the book is a study into airplane crashes. So airplanes have become much safer in the past couple of decades. But that's also the reason why these airplane crashes became more newsworthy, more of an incident. So if you actually do polls, then people are sort of more scared to step into airplanes that have become increasingly safe, right? This is a very strange paradox and another reason why I think you should be a little bit wary of following the news because it just, you get this upside down worldview and it, you give your attention and your, your emotional energy to the wrong things. This is a complicated issue because... You can point to something like policing in America and you can say 99% of active police force do their job with diligence, a moral compass, and some bit of compassion. Then you could say 1% or even if it's 0.0001% create these kind of newsworthy moments where black and brown people in this country are, are unjustly and unfairly attacked over and over again. And by this argument, we should be saying every day on the news, look at how many <laughs> police officers did their job effectively, safely and efficiently. Chris Rock has a great joke about this. Here's the thing. I know it's hard being a cop. I know it's hard. I know that shit's dangerous. I know it is, okay? But some jobs can't have bad apples, okay? Some jobs, everybody got to be good. Like pilots. You know? American Airlines can't be like, you know, most of our pilots like to land. We just got a few bad apples that like to crash in the mountains. Well, if you look at policing in the US and zoom out a little bit and take the international context into account, you know, the US is really an outlier. So it's not just a few bad apples here and there, but if you just look at the numbers, 
And the amount of police violence, it's much, much higher than in most other developed countries. If you also look at the quality of police training, it's a totally different planet than Europe. If you look at Scandinavian countries, for example, or the Netherlands, police training takes much longer. So it takes you about three or four years before you are a police officer. In the US, it's often, you know, 19, 20 weeks, and then they already give you this military equipment. <laughs> and police training in Europe is often all about de-escalation. So from day one, you hear only about the importance of de-escalation, de-escalation, talk, 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 talk. Very often, police officers don't even carry guns. So 90% of police officers in London don't carry guns. In Norway, you have these prisons where the guards just socialize with the inmates, for example. I have one chapter about that in the book, which is the most radical application of the theory that most people are pretty decent, because what they do there is that you have people there who've done pretty terrible things, been very violent, murder, rape, you name it. But they end up in a prison where the penalty is they've lost their freedom. But apart from that, they can just be part of a small society where they have the freedom to make music, read books, go to the cinema. They have their own music studio. They've got their own music label, which is called Criminal Records. You look at that and sort of your intuition says, well, this is clearly wrong. This is not what justice looks like. But then you look at the statistics and the scientific research and you realize, hey, wait a minute, Norway has the lowest recidivism rate in the world, the lowest chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. So it really works. The US has the opposite, absolutely the opposite, where these prisons are basically schools for more crime, where very often people come in for small drug offenses, for example, and they come out as hardened criminals, which is, if you think about it, it's a crazy system. You have these tax-funded institutions to get more crime, basically. I think that if you zoom out a little bit and look at the international context, it's not just incidents. How many George Floyds have there been before George Floyd? And if you look at policing and the whole criminal justice system in the US, I think there are so many things fundamentally wrong. And that's not something that happened yesterday or this year. It's been developing since the 70s. It has a very long and deep history. You mentioned tax avoidance. And on the subject of pressing issues that I think you are actively combating, many people learned of you and your work last year when you made your first, and let's be honest, probably last appearance at Davos. <laughs> hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. 
In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. I don't, I don't think you're getting invited back. I don't know if you'd even go. Oh, I would go. I'd love to. <laughs> I would just give the same speech again. <laughs> Why don't we take a listen to some of that monologue from your appearance at Davos in January of 2019? This is my first time at Davos, and, uh, and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, 1,500 private yets have flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And, uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water, right? <laughs> there, was, there was only one panel, actually. Well, we've had two. You're the second well, of well, our panelists. There, there so was only one panel. Let's go there. One. One panel hidden away in the media center that was actually about tax avoidance. Yeah. I, was about, I was one of the 15 participants. So <laughs> something needs to change here. I mean, ten, 10 years ago, the World Economic Forum asked the question, what must industry do to prevent a broad social backlash? The answer is very simple. Just stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes. Mm -hmm. Taxes, taxes. We need to... Mm -hmm. I mean, just two days ago, there was a billionaire in here. Uh, what's his name? Michael Dell. And uh, he asked the question, like, name me one country where a top marginal tax rate of 70% has actually worked. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a historian. The United States, that's where it has actually worked. In the 1950s, during <laughs> Republican President Eisenhower, you know, the war veteran, the top marginal tax rate in the U.S. was 91% mm -hmm. for people like Michael Dell. You know, the top estate tax for people like Michael Dell was more than 70%. 
I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid <laughs> philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more, but come on, it's, we gotta be talking about taxes. Yeah, exactly. That's it, taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit, in, in my opinion. Walk me through this moment because your words didn't feel like an accident. What happened in the days leading up to this appearance? So I was invited to Davos to talk about my previous book, which is called Utopia for Realists. That book was about how seemingly crazy ideas can become reality. Something that we've seen many times in history, right? The abolition of slavery, equal rights for men and women, the welfare state, all these things were utopian once until they happened. And so I've always been very interested in that process as a historian. I mean, history for me basically is the science of change, how things that seem completely bizarre can actually happen for the better or for the worse. So one of the ideas in Utopia for Realists was the idea of giving everyone a basic income. When I wrote the book six years ago, that was a pretty much forgotten idea. But in the past couple of years, it had become more and more popular, especially in Silicon Valley circles, because people were starting to get worried about automation and the threat of robots to our jobs. And we're wondering, how are people going to survive if they don't have a job anymore? Maybe we just need to give them money. I think that's actually the worst argument in favor of basic income. I, th I think there are much better arguments, such as basic income is just an investment that pays for itself. Kids do better in school. Crime goes down. Healthcare costs go down, etc. Anyway, I was there to talk about basic income. And I was also just curious. It doesn't happen every day that you get an invitation for Davos. I almost didn't go, I must say, because they wanted me to pay for my own stay. And it was very expensive. I had to pay like, I don't know, 3,000 euros for just a couple of days. And for those listening, explain what Davos is. Oh, yeah, Davos. It's just where the, the riches of the rich go every year with very powerful politicians attending as well to talk about the great problems in the world. It's really crazy. You walk around there and you see, hey, that's Bill Gates. Hey, that's the former president of the U.S. Hey, that's he's very high at the U.N. It's a very bizarre place to be. And just the level of security is crazy as well. There's a, this whole cost system. So you get a pass. That determines everything. So the journalists are the lowest costs. They can't go anywhere. You know, they are only allowed in the main hall. And then as you're more important, you go, you go up. And obviously the billionaires and the really powerful politicians are A-level. And so I was pretty high, actually. I was pretty high because I was invited as a speaker. So I could go almost everywhere, which was fun. I was, you know, also allowed to attend a lot of private discussions and debates. So I was just walking around that conference that week. And I became more and more uncomfortable because here you have all these people who are pretty nice, you know, they're actually quite friendly and they talk about issues that I care about as well. Feminism and inequality and climate change. You know, you had David Attenborough showing his new series. Have you seen his new thing on Netflix? It's really great. There are actually, there's a part where you see people in Davos 2019 responding to some of his footage. And I saw people crying. I saw people crying there, you know, just seeing the impact of climate change and of human activity on the natural world and how we're basically wrecking the planet. And I just, I thought it was crazy because I knew that thousands of private yets had flown in so that people could attend Davos. I knew that the environmental impact of just one average individual in Davos was as big as a whole city or, well, maybe not a whole city, a whole village in sub-Saharan Africa, right? So... I thought it was sort of the high summit of hypocrisy. And yeah, I became quite uncomfortable with that. It was the last day that I had to participate in a panel that I knew was going to be televised, or at least cameras were going to be present and 
people were going to watch the live stream. I think, I don't know, uh, four or 500 people watched that live stream. So the day before, I was uh, talking about that with my wife. And I said, well, you know, I'm just going to promote my book there, say my standard things in favor of basic income. And then I'm going to get the first train out of here because <laughs> I've got enough of this. And she said, are you really going to do that? Why don't you just say what you really think? I mean, you, you mentioned cameras. And I said, well, hey, maybe you're right. So I took out my iPhone and wrote these short notes on, on what I really thought about the whole conference. So yeah, the next morning there was this panel and it, it took about 20 or 30 minutes before I got the opportunity to speak. The moderator asked me something about poverty and the psychology of it. And I just ignored his question and gave my speech. <laughs> That's basically how it happened. And I felt good about it. I uh, got back home and nothing much happened, basically. I mean, a couple of my friends saw it and, and it did okay on Twitter. But then I think it was Sunday or Monday that it completely exploded because people started to make viral videos out of it. Yeah, and I think because I basically said what everyone else thinks, but, you know, most people are not invited to those places. How did the room and panelists feel in the moment as you're talking about tax avoidance and the hypocrisy of this event? What was the temperature in the room? Well, the temperature went up quite a bit. <laughs> and it was a quite mixed response. So you have to imagine there are quite a few young people that they call, I don't know, it's a group called Global Leaders or something like that. And I think they liked it. There were quite a few journalists who absolutely loved it. And there were quite a few billionaires and really rich people who absolutely hated it. But you have to imagine that this was not a very well attended panel. It was sort of the activist panel, you know, it wasn't the thing that most of the really powerful and rich people would go to. But just the fact that we were there in Davos and that behind me was the logo of the World Economic Forum, that made all the difference. So it was, <laughs> I thought it was just hilarious that out of everything to come out of Davos that year, and they spend millions on PR and on fancy videos, etc. It was all drowned, <laughs> drowned out by this one viral video of this <laughs> Dutch idiot talking about taxes, taxes, taxes. So yeah, I had a lot of fun. Is that how you describe yourself, a Dutch idiot? <laughs> yeah, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Why is the idea of tax avoidance so radical? Well, I think that in a just society, people share. So sharing is very much a part of human nature. If you look at nomadic hunter-gatherers, and if you study those societies, then you see that the ethos of sharing is incredibly important. Humility is very important. Shame plays a very important role. We are the only species in the whole animal kingdom uh, with the ability to blush, which is such a striking fact, right? That we involuntarily give away our feelings to each other in order to establish trust. But when societies scale up, when we start living in villages and cities and we have these technologies and financial systems and you name it, then the distance between people increases and people can become more shameless. So for the biggest part of our history, there was actually a process that scientists call survival of the friendliest. Again, when we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers, the biggest part of our history, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. But then a relatively short while ago, 10,000 years ago, which is nothing, you know, if you look at whole world history, we started living in a world that is often more about survival of the shameless, which is very disturbing if you think about it. How is it possible that People who you wouldn't want to take care of your kids have now become the most powerful political leaders in the US and India and the UK and Brazil 
right? We see the survival of the shameless everywhere, which is a real indictment of our system. And I think the same thing you see with tax avoidance. So in any just healthy society, paying tax is seen as a civic duty, right? Something to be proud of, actually. You also have a certain amount of transparency. So for example, in Norway, people know what other people pay in taxes. You can just look it up. If you want to know what your neighbors pay in taxes, you just type in their address and their name, and there you have it. It's just a sort of a transparent way of making sure that everyone knows that everyone contributes to the common good. The fact that we ended up in a society where very often paying tax is seen as something that is bad, that you're a little bit stupid if you pay a lot in tax, it's very disturbing. I try to push against that because actually in the best periods of our history, so if you look at American history and you look at the 50s and the 60s where we had strongest economic growth and the highest levels of innovation, these were actually the periods where people paid most in tax. The top marginal tax rate, if you were very rich, went up all the way to 90%. And we had very high inheritance taxes and taxes on estates and on wealth and you name it. And that actually went hand in hand with economic growth. So capitalism cannot function properly if you do not tame it, if you do not make sure that everyone benefits. Yeah, it's a very simple thing, but there's just so much historical and economic evidence for it that I felt that you just need to repeat it all over again. Because if you don't have that, I don't think that you can have a a just society or a stable society. Putting a pause on the conversation for a second. As some of you know, we are an independently operated podcast. That also means we are a listener-supported podcast. But in this moment, the easiest and most helpful thing you could do for us right now is to share the show on social media, over email, with a friend, family. Sharing this podcast is really the best way for new listeners to find what we do here. So if you can, and if you'd like to, pass it along, whether it's our episode with Representative Ilhan Omar, Dr. Cornell West, Noam Chomsky, Beto O'Rourke, Elizabeth Gilbert, Ted Danson, Juliette Lewis, Miranda July, Claudia Rankin, Gloria Steinem, Janelle Monet, Brittany Howard, Carol Burnett, Titus Burgess, Norman Lear, Jenny Slate. Those are just some of the select few who've come on in 2020. If any of those talks have meant anything to you, it would mean the world if you shared it online with a friend, family member, stranger. I'm not going to tell you who to share it with, but it would mean a lot to me. It would mean a lot to everyone who makes this podcast possible. And it would ensure that we can continue making this podcast into 2021. Thank you in advance for your support, your generosity, and your time. I don't take any of those things for granted. And now... Back to Rucker Bregman. I think some people may be listening to you talk about how selflessness is actually our core. That's our true nature. And they're thinking, well, that toilet paper sure went fast. (laughs) Oh, all the Clorox wipes. Apparently we all needed to have... 80 cases of them. Make the case for our nature being selfless in that prehistory period that you write about. So one of the most important questions that science has asked for a very long time is, why us? Why have we conquered the globe? 
Why not the chimpanzees? Why not the penguins? Why not the bonobos? Why not the Neanderthals? What makes us so special? For a very long time, people believed that we were chosen by God. Then people started to believe that we are very rational, very smart compared to other species. Then other people said, well, maybe we're just very violent or mean. You know, that's what the social Darwinists started to believe, survival of the nastiest. But the interesting thing is that if you compare animals, if you compare a chimpanzee, a bonobo, and a human toddler of around two years old and do an intelligence test, for example, then often the chimpanzees win. Or the pigs, if they participate as well, they win. The pigs are incredibly smart. But it's also interesting because there's actually not a lot of evidence that on an individual level, people are very smart. Most of the stuff we know, we learn from other people. I'm now looking at a camera. I have no idea how that camera works. I have a laptop in front of me. I've got a microphone. I've got a table. I've got coffee here. I and mean, almost everything around me, I have absolutely no clue how to make it on my own. People are incredibly incompetent individually. But collectively, we're pretty amazing. We can do extraordinary things. And that is really what makes us special. So, you know, the famous scientist Newton once said that if he had seen further than others, that was because he stood on the shoulder of giants. And I think that's wrong. If we see further than other species, it's because we stand on the shoulder of dwarves. That's humanity. You just pile a lot of dwarves on top of each other and then they, they can see very far. That, that's really what distinguishes us. We're not very mean. We're not very strong. Chimpanzees are much stronger. Bulls are much stronger. We're not very quick either. We're not very smart. It's just that we can just cooperate on a skill that no other species in the whole animal kingdom can. We're relatively friendly. Now, the evidence for that is something that you can really see within our bodies today. So I already talked about blushing. I haven't talked yet about our unique eyes. So human beings have unique cooperative eyes. We have white sclera. We've got white around our irises. So that means that we can track each other's gazes. We can see what we are looking at, what other people are looking at. With all the other primates, chimpanzees, bonobos, you name it, that's different. They've got dark around their eyes, which means they're a little bit like mafiosi, you know, wearing shades, which obviously makes it hard to trust. It's much easier if you can look one another in the eye. Yeah, this capacity for friendliness, this capacity that we can trust each other, if we can actually see, feel and hear each other, that is so deeply embedded in our evolution. And the most interesting thing actually is that if you compare skeletons from 50, 40, 30, 20, 10,000 years ago, then you actually start to see that people look nicer. We've evolved to be <laughs> nicer, right? We, um, we have smaller brains, we have thinner bones, we look more puppyish, basically. So what a dog is compared to a wolf, that's what we are compared to the Neanderthal. We've domesticated ourselves. We are what I call homo puppy. Again, you speak of a kind of core common understanding that we can naturally have with one another. And in this country, we have never seemingly been more divided, or at least that divide has never been so pronounced or out in the open. Part of your book contends that this friction, this divide started at the end of the last ice age where land started to cause these problems towns and villages were created and in those towns and villages people started claiming land with land comes inheritance as land is passed from generation to generation the ownership of land breeds larger and larger economic inequality how do we undo years and centuries and millennia of history you know, when we're talking about fixing right now, we're up against such a seismic, such a long history here. It seems improbable that we can undo that. Well, look, we can't go back, obviously. 
that's impossible. I'm not advocating a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. <laughs> that even if we, if we, even if we want to do that, that's simply impossible because we simply do not have the knowledge. It's actually really, really difficult, and there's a huge amount of cultural knowledge that you need in order to survive. What I do think is important, though, is that we have a more realistic view of human nature, so that we can design our institutions around that. Because what we assume in other people is what we get out of them. If we have schools workplaces, democracies, prisons that assume the worst in other people, then that's what we're going to get. Think about the traditional boarding school, the Lord of the Flies-like boarding school, right? Where you assume that kids are naturally lazy and selfish. Well, then you need a strict hierarchy, etc., etc. And you're going to prepare people for a very nasty and competitive society. I think we should turn it around. Should realize that ideas are never merely ideas. Stories are never just stories. We become what we tell ourselves. I have one chapter in the book about Lord of the Flies, the extraordinarily famous novel by William Golding, written in the 50s, about kids that shipwreck on an island and turn into monsters. You know, another example of this veneer theory. Millions and millions of people were basically forced to read it at school. And that must have had an impact. So many times when we think about you know, how we should govern our workplaces or societies that people think back on this novel and they, hmm, well, maybe not give people too much freedom because then things get out of hand very quickly. And that's why I think we need new stories. But I mean, I must also emphasize that obviously the big question that hangs over a book like this, if people have evolved to be friendly, then why are we often so cruel? Why are we the cruelest species in the whole animal kingdom? Because that's clearly true as well. I've never heard of a penguin that says, let's lock up other groups of penguins and kill them and exterminate them all, right? These are singularly human crimes. And I think one interesting aspect here is that there's a connection between our friendliness and our horrible behavior. If you look at atrocities in world history, if you look at wars and genocides, then what you start to understand quite quickly is that sadism is is not the motivating force. People don't really enjoy violence. Sadists do exist, but it's very, very rare. So the Joker, as a, as a model to understand human evil, that is absolutely wrong. Most evil is committed in the name of the good, in the name of loyalty, for example, or comradeship or friendship, because you want to be loyal to your own group and you want to help your friends. I've got one chapter in the book about German soldiers fighting in 1944 and 1945, even though it was clear they were going to lose the war. And Allied psychologists couldn't understand. They thought these people must have been brainwashed. You know, they've turned into monsters. What's happening here? Then they start interviewing prisoners of war and they realize that actually these soldiers were not fighting or most of them were not fighting for grand ideologies or something like that, but for their friends. They didn't want to let their friends down. Now, that obviously, that explanation doesn't work for all the atrocities. If you want to understand an SS camp guard, then ideology becomes much more important. But this dynamic where people justify their atrocities in the name of some higher cause is something that you encounter again and again in history. And it is very uncomfortable. So I'm not saying this as a way to make people comfortable and say, oh, that's, that justifies it. No, it's actually very disturbing because it makes you question your own ideals. You know, that gets me actually back to my previous book, Utopia for Realists, about how we actually make progress and how bizarre ideas become reality. Well, that often starts with people who are really unfriendly and who are willing to go against the status quo. Greta Thunberg said this a while ago, you know, when she spoke to world leaders at the UN. She said, you're too afraid to be unpopular. And that's so often the problem with homo puppy. Homo puppy wants to be liked, wants to be loved, wants to be part of the group. And so often that is exactly the problem. 
I have a very paradoxical message at the end of the book is yes, you've evolved to be friendly, but that's the problem. Actually, if you want to make progress, then often we need to be a little bit unfriendly and unpopular. Can we go to a moment where you were particularly unfriendly <laughs> on the heels of your Davos takedown? Tucker Carlson invited you onto his Fox program to talk about tax avoidance. The interview never made it to air, but a phone recording of your back and forth surfaced online. Why don't we take a listen for a second? This is you and Tucker Carlson last year. America is still pretty much the most powerful country in the world, right? So um, if it if it really would want to, it could easily crack down on, uh, on tax paradises. But the thing is, I mean, you guys have brought into power a president that doesn't even want to show its own tax returns. Uh, I mean, who knows how many billions he has hidden in the Cayman Islands or in Bermuda. Um, so I think the issue really is, is, is one of corruption and of people being bribed and of not being, you know, not talking about the real issues. Uh, what the family, you know, what the Murdochs basically want you to do is to scapegoat immigrants instead of talking about tax avoidance. So I'm, I'm glad you're now finally raising the issue. But that's what been been happening for the past couple of years. Uh-huh. And I'm taking, I'm taking orders from the Murdochs, is that what you're saying? No, I mean, it doesn't work that directly. But I mean, you've been part of the Cato Institute, right? You're, you've been a senior fellow there for years. You've been, you've been taking their dirty money. They're funded by cook billionaires, you know? Wait, why don't you tell me how it does work? Well, it works by you taking their dirty money. It's as easy as that. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. And I'm glad you now finally jumped the bandwagon, you know, of people like Bernie Sanders and AOC. But you're not, you're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem, actually. AOC, wait, what can I just say? And It's true, right? It's true, right, that all the, all the anchors... All the anchors on Fox, <laughs> they're all millionaires. How is this possible? Well, it's very easy. You're just not talking about certain things. It doesn't even, Fox doesn't even play where you are. It doesn't play where you are. <laughs> well, have you heard of the internet? <laughs> I can watch things whatever I want, you know? I have, actually. I, I, I can't say I'm a great fan of your show, but I do my homework when you invite me on your show. So, I mean, you're probably not going to air this, uh, but I went to Davos to speak truth to power, and I'm doing exactly the same thing right now. You might not like it, but you're a millionaire funded by billionaires, and that's the reason why you're not talking about these issues. Yeah, only now. Come on, you jumped the bandwagon. You're all like, oh, I'm against the globalist elite, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's not very convincing, to be honest. To Why don't you go f*** yourself, you tiny brain, and I hope this gets picked up, because you're a moron. I tried to give you a hearing, but you were too annoying for me. Uh, you can't handle the criticism, can you? Re-listening to that exchange, <laughs> I'm curious, do you fundamentally believe everyone, irrespective of race, class, politics, upbringing, do you believe everyone can be reached in conversation? Because if you don't, I'm curious why you'd go on a program like his. Well, I would say that on a fundamental human level, yes. But obviously we don't live in a society like that. In our mediocracy, there's a very different dynamic at play. 
And so when you're being invited by someone like Tucker Carlson to be on a show and he wanted me to, to, he wanted to congratulate me on what I said at Davos and that I stood up to these hypocrite billionaires and he thought it was awesome. And I think then my role at that point was to point out his hypocrisy because as I said back then, he's a millionaire funded by billionaires to spread hate and tell lies about immigrants and people of color. That's basically his job. So in the world we live right now, and in that sense, I was a realist. I think that was the best thing I could do. Now, if it would have been my, my uncle at some kind of birthday party, maybe I would have tried something different. But as I said, Humankind, my book, is not, is not an argument in favor of that you should always be kind. Actually, very often the just thing is to be pretty unkind, to be a little bit nasty, to go against the status quo. And I wasn't sure afterwards, because to be honest, I didn't really plan this all that well. It sort of happened by accident. <laughs> so I wasn't sure afterwards whether I'd done the right thing. But then I started to see that a lot of fans of Tucker Carlson on his own YouTube channel were actually saying, you know what, I love you, but you were wrong here. And he actually has a point and you needed to debate him on this. So then I thought, hmm, maybe, uh, maybe it was a good thing after all, especially because everything has become so groupish in America, that it's very easy to be pleasing to the people who already like you, right? And it's difficult to reach those on the other side. But then again, everything is so polarized now, and especially Democrats have tried for so long to, to have this compromising approach, and it led nowhere. So I'm much more enthusiastic about this younger generation of politicians like AOC and the Sunrise Movement and Justice Democrats, and you name it, who are basically saying, this is what it is. This, these are the huge challenges that lie ahead and we're not going to compromise here. But that's also because it's a question whether it's even a democracy, right? In the Netherlands, we have coalitions, always coalitions. So three, four or five political parties govern together. So then obviously, if you need to govern together, then you need to talk to one another. And you're not going to say really nasty things about the prime minister of the other political party because you need to work with that guy. And I think that's what a healthy democracy looks like, where you are basically forced to work together. But that's sadly not the case in the US, where you have a very bizarre system of minority rule. One of the criticisms you've had of progressivism is that people on the left have not been clear about what they believe in. They've been abundantly clear about what they oppose, sexism and racism, misogyny in all forms. Climate change, the establishment, austerity, you name it, yeah. Against everything. There was even a book with the title Against Everything that was published a couple of years ago. But yeah, that's really a problem. Very often, we only know what we're against instead of what we're actually for. Why do you think that is? That was my criticism in Utopia Freelist when I wrote that book, 2014. And it has actually changed quite a bit. Obviously, that book was an argument in favor of utopian thinking, of actually knowing where you want to go. And if you now look at this new generation of politicians, I mean, Naomi Klein and AOC did this video together of what a better and more just society could actually look like. And there's so many exciting new ideas that people are talking about, not only higher taxes on the rich, but also a shorter working week, a Green New Deal, a new sort of green industrial revolution, a basic income to completely eradicate poverty sustainable cities with high-speed trains, etc., etc. It could really be awesome. We're just going to need to build a lot. There's just a lot of work to do. In that sense, we made so much progress. And I think all this talk about the Green New Deal is very important because it just emphasizes that there's just so much we need to do, right? It's not just about being against something. 
you know, stopping fossil fuels and consuming less, et cetera, et cetera. It's also about growing new things. This is what the issue I have with the degrowth movement, even though sort of on an intellectual level, I agree. I think that degrowth is a really bad slogan because growth is a wonderful word. Kids grow, plants grow. Now, obviously, if you have a lot of growth of bullshit, that's not good. That's more like a cancer. You sort of need a positive language, a language of progress that makes people excited and gives them some kind of vision of something to, something to strive for, something to fight for. And too often, although again, I should mention that this is changing, but still too often, people on the left or progressives or activists, they sometimes sort of enjoy being raw, enjoy losing. Let's put it like that. They... They like being right on the right side of history, but then just being swept aside by the more powerful forces. And I think there's now a new generation of activists that actually wants to win, that actually not only cares about the ideals and ideas themselves, but also cares about how are we actually going to implement them? How are we actually going to get in power? How do we take over these institutions? How do we actually do something substantial instead of just being right? Because if you're 80 years old and your grandchildren ask you, well, grandpa, grandma, what did you do when we had just a couple of years left to save humanity? <laughs> and you say, well, I was being right all the time. You know, it's not a really good answer, right? It's not good. So uh, we need something better than that. You mentioned the new wave of left progressivism, AOC, Representative Omar. They're dubbed the squad. And, and I can tell you, though, after sitting with her, we can talk about progressivism. We can talk about these radical ideas that they are fighting for. We can talk about their interest in winning. But we also have to consider, I think, the very real human toll that it takes on someone like Representative Omar, AOC. These policies are not just words on a page. They're not just viral videos. They have very real human consequences that have come with death threats, endless harassment, online and in real life. And it's hard to reconcile those two realities. If you live in a, in a well-governed society, a relatively just society with little inequality, say Sweden right now or Norway right now, in a society like that, you need very few heroes. You just don't need them. If you're going to be average, then that's okay. Because average people are relatively decent and will do the right thing. In a just society, they'll pay their taxes They'll be nice to their neighbors, etc., etc. If you live in a society or in a period in history when things are breaking down, when we really need to worry about whether democracy is going to survive, when the temperature of the planet is going up and up, when more and more animals are going extinct, then being average is not going to be good enough anymore. Just being a relatively decent person is not going to be enough anymore. We need more heroes, basically. And when we think about heroic behavior, we often think about saving someone who's drowning, for example. And I, I don't really see that as heroic because that's actually just human. It's very intuitive. If you interview people who've done something like that, they say, well, you know, I didn't think about it. That was just a completely intuitive thing to do. Actual heroic behavior often goes against your intuitions and you really pay a high price for that. If you read biographies of people like Martin Luther King, for example, or Nelson Mandela, you understand quite quickly that they paid such a high price and also their families and the people around them paid such a high price. You know, living in constant anxiety and being fearful for your life all the time and how it basically destroyed their private lives as well. It was very, very difficult. But the message for me is that if you are comfortable 
if you enjoy your life, maybe you're part of the problem. If your ideals do not make you uncomfortable, if you do not pay a price, what are they worth anyway? In a normal, just society, we don't need a lot of that because the status quo is fine anyway. But if things are going downhill, then we need more and more people who are willing to pay that price. And no, you're not going to get a lot of money for that. You're not going to get a lot of compliments. The only thing that you'll get is the feeling that you're doing the right thing. So before we go, as this election unfolds and we try to proceed forward in this country, I want to go to your epilogue, which includes your 10 rules to live by. We don't have to go through all 10, but I'll pick a few out for us. Number one, when in doubt, assume the best. Yeah, it's the most important one and the most difficult one to live by. Very often we're in doubt. When people communicate, we don't always know what the other person is thinking, especially when the distance increases in our communication and when we can't see each other blush, for example, or look one another in the eye. When we're communicating on WhatsApp, for example, then it becomes more difficult. You get this emoji, a smiling bit of shit. You know, how do you, how do you interpret that? And what we then often do is when we're in doubt, we assume the worst. We think that other people have bad intentions. And I think that's not the right way to approach things for a couple of reasons. So the first reason is that most often you're wrong because most people are pretty decent. They'll mean well most of the time. So it's just statistically more likely. And so it's smart to have that approach. In the second place, that even if people do not have good intention, then your positive response can cause what psychologists call non-complementary behavior or a non-complementary reaction, turning off the other cheek mechanism. I mean, we know this from our personal lives. When you're in a fight, for example, and you say, well, you know, it was actually my fault, then very quickly the other person says, oh, you know, it was actually all my fault, blah, blah, blah. So people mirror each other all the time. And the way to break a cycle of nastiness is to force yourself to be nice because that can actually be contagious. And the third reason why we should assume the best is that even though there are sometimes professional con artists out there, I still think it's rational to approach pretty much everyone around you with trust because it's just the price that we have to pay. This is something that I learned from Maria Konnikova, you know, the social psychologist who wrote a big book about con artists. She was asked after years of research what the impact on her life was, researching this for years and knowing about, you know, all the tricks they can pull you. And she said, well, you know, I realized that this is just the price that I have to pay. If I want to live my life where I want to trust most people around me and most people that I meet, I just got to accept that I'll be calmed a couple of times in my life. Because the alternative is that I have to distrust everyone all the time. And I think that's completely irrational. So if people have never been conned, then they should see a therapist because probably their basic attitude to life is not trusting enough. I love that. <laughs> As someone who's been conned often. <laughs> it's something to be proud of, you know? <laughs> I, I finally found the book to tell me that it's okay that I've been conned. It's a sign of psychological healthiness. <laughs> yeah, that or, or masochism, I'm not sure which. Temper your empathy, train your compassion. Empathy is something that has a really good reputation. But there's a psychologist called Paul Bloom who's written a book against empathy, I love that title, who really convinced me that actually empathy is often part of the problem. So we talked about this groupishness, right? That we often do the nasty things in the name of comradeship, loyalty, etc. Empathy plays a big role here as well. Empathy is like a searchlight, like a spotlight. You really focus on one specific person or a group or, you know, just the people who are part of your tribe or bubble. And then the rest of the world fades into darkness. 
Compassion is very different. It's also a different process in the brain. Different parts of the brain light up when people feel compassion. Compassion is more distant. It's more rational, where you do have feelings of care and love for someone else, but you don't really step into someone else's shoes. You don't feel the same feelings, and that's not necessary. So we don't need to feel what other people are feeling. We need to recognize their feelings and take them into account. But empathy often leads to exhaustion. It also increases the call for vengeance, actually, because if you feel a lot of empathy for one side, then you start hating the other side more. So I really became convinced that empathy, even though it's a fundamental part of human nature, and that quite often in our relationships, it's a nice and good thing, that if you zoom out a little bit, it's often part of the problem. Rule five, which I think really speaks to a problem right now, which is try to understand others. Yeah, which is not the same thing as condoning their behavior. So if you look at this Norwegian prison system again, here you have people who've done really horrible things. But still, the Norwegians have the compassion and the rationality and the distance to realize that you know, you don't help anyone by just giving them a bad feeling, a bad time, torturing them or whatever. Vengeance, in the end, serves no one. What you want is to heal society because at some point people are going to be released. Then they're going to become someone's neighbor. So the challenge is to turn criminals into law-abiding, tax-paying citizens instead of the other way around, right? In the U.S., you often have the opposite. You have law-abiding citizens who do one small thing and then you turn them into criminals with taxpayer money. But the approach you need here, it takes a lot of self-control. Let's put it like that. It's the same with terrorists. What do terrorist leaders want the most? Well, they want you to bomb their country because that's the best way to recruit more terrorists. The more rational approach is to try and understand why people radicalize. We've seen quite a lot of that approach in countries like Denmark and also in the Netherlands, where police and secret services try to de-escalate and to have a conversation with young people who were thinking about going to Syria, for example, in 2014, 2015. That sounds soft, but if you look at the scientific evidence, it's way more effective. There's one city called Aarhus in Denmark where they use this approach, really trying to understand what motivates young people to do such a crazy thing, go to a war thousands of kilometers away, actually try and have a conversation with them. It's been the most successful anti-radicalization program <laughs> in the history of the last 50 years. You know, they had dozens of people leaving and after that, almost no one left anymore. But it takes a lot of self-control and it's all about understanding someone else, which is, again, and I can't emphasize this enough, which is not the same as justifying their behavior or, or condoning it or whatever. But you have to understand why people do what they do. We have two more that I want to hit. Come out of the closet. Don't be afraid to do good. Often we put the good into quarantine, right? We're a little bit ashamed of it, which is a shame because then it's not contagious anymore. Human behavior is incredibly contagious. You know, it's just like viruses. We imitate each other all the time. And so if you do something in broad daylight, you act nice towards other people that can spread like a disease, like a virus, a virus of goodness. But if you are a little bit ashamed because you don't want to be seen as a do-gooder or something like that, then yeah, you do it in secret and people don't see it anymore. So yeah, I think it's good to come out of the closet. And I think that's also part of the new zeitgeist. So in the 90s, cynicism was avant-garde, was cool. We had films like Fight Club, you know, Brad Pitt saying we just buy stuff we don't need to impress people we don't like. Uh, we had bands like Nirvana, just entertainers. There were intellectuals like Francis Fukuyama arguing that we had arrived at the end of history. 
So it was cool back then to just have no vision, no ideals, nothing to fight for, because there was nothing. That's very different right now. If you now look at the younger generation, millennials, but especially Generation Z, they're the most ethnically diverse, most highly educated and most progressive generation this world has ever seen. And cynicism is out. Hope is in. So it's more in fashion to believe, to actually believe in something, which is a good thing because then it's contagious. I'm happy to see that more and more people are coming out of the closet. Your last piece of advice is to be realistic. What does that mean to you in 2020? As we spoke about, so often we equate cynicism with realism and realism with cynicism. We think that these things are the same thing. And I think it's the other way around. If you if you want to be a realist, you need to believe in the goodness of humanity. And I think it's actually an act of defiance, a revolutionary act. Those at the top, they don't want you to believe in the goodness of those around you. They don't want you. They want you to be cynical. Cynicism is the greatest gift to those in power because it justifies their hierarchy. It makes sure that, you know, they can just go on doing what they've always been doing. Yeah, believing in the goodness of humanity, which is not about being naive. It's not saying that we're angels. Clearly, we're capable of incredible cruelty. But what we assume in other people is what we get out of them. Moving to a new view of human nature, telling new stories about who we are and what we can actually be if we work together. I think that's the first step towards a better world. My last question, Rucker, is that you have written now five books. And in these five books, you are actively reframing and redefining your guiding principles. You're making them clear on the page, both to yourself and to readers. But I think a lot of readers go through their day-to-day lives, and these principles are a little bit more nebulous. They're not so defined. They have doubts. They have insecurities. They have questions big and small about what they believe in. They don't know what they believe in. What do those doubts look like? That's a great question. One of my favorite intellectuals is the philosopher Burton Russell who has always been an example for me, or for a very long time now, because he had just such a, an impressive intellectual integrity. He was willing to say goodbye to all of his ideas if that's what the evidence pointed to. He wasn't too attached to his ideas. That's what's always impressed me. I'm not saying that I'm as good as that, but it's something that I try to keep in mind as a writer. What I tried to do while I was writing this book is to ask myself the question, will this hold up 10 years from now? Is the evidence strong enough? Do I really want to believe this? Do I want to believe it too much, maybe, because I just want to believe that people are pretty decent? Or or am I, you know, am I rigorous enough? The challenge, I guess, and this goes back to what we talked about earlier, is to make life a little bit more difficult for yourself. A lot of self-help books are about how to make life easier. And if I would write a self-help book, then it would be a book, here's how to make your life more difficult. (laughs) Because, I mean, our brains are hardwired to make life easier for ourselves, right? To have our ideals fit our group, etc. We are self-serving very often on a psychological level. So maybe progress starts with making life a bit more uncomfortable and difficult for ourselves. And what I love here is that sometimes ideas can radicalize you. So we talked about vegetarianism. I stopped eating meat four years ago. And then as you read about that, you sort of start radicalizing yourself because you realize that the arguments that make you a vegetarian should actually make you a vegan. And so 
I don't want to do that, or at least I know a thousand reasons not to do that, and the first 500 are called cheese. But what I love about the power of ideas is that they can just propel you forward as well, because I, I know what they mean. Maybe I should try and write that self-help book, but I, I'm not sure if it's going to sell a lot of copies, because I would want to write a self-help book that people would wish they hadn't read after <laughs> when they had finished it, because it made their life so much more difficult. <laughs> I think the lesson to your self-help book, but also humankind, which indirectly may be a self-help book, is that you have to embrace the discomfort. Or that in any just society, there's a certain amount of discomfort. Everyone feels some amount of discomfort all the time. So if you're feeling sort of completely comfortable with yourself and your lovely house and your friends and your family members, while there's so much injustice at the same time in the world... I mean, then maybe that comfort is exactly the problem. Rucker Breckman, I thank you so much for your time and all your words. I hope we listen to some of them, most of them, any of them. And I hope, as I'm looking at your book, A Hopeful History is the tagline. I hope you're right about it. Well, let's, let's put it like this. Even if I'm wrong, I think that it would have a lot of beneficial consequences if people believe that I'm right. Spoken like a true philosopher. Irrefutable arguments. Rucker Bregman, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Catherine Myers and Sabrina Callahan. I'd also like to thank Rucker Bregman for coming on. His latest book, Humankind, can be found wherever you do your reading. If you'd like to learn more about him, be sure to visit his site at ruckerbregman.com. You can find out more about this episode and our podcast at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I imagine you would like our talks with Cornell West, Noam Chomsky, Naomi Klein, Representative Ilhan Omar, Malcolm Gladwell, and Beto O'Rourke. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at sam at talkeasypod.com. This show is made possible by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are David Harding, Rena Zhang, Joshua Siegel, and Kevin Kaur. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. Our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gabrizak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back on Thursday with a special two-part episode, including talks with Dr. Ashish Jha and Justin Rosenstein. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues 
with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.